Well, as we move into James 2, verses 14 through 26, we're going to explore a debate, or maybe a so-called debate between James and Paul, but it's really not a debate at all. Both are talking about saving faith, but just from a different perspective. You see, this is not a contradiction. It's actually complementary. It's going to explore what saving faith really looks like and what it does. And it's today on Walk in Truth. Welcome to Walk in Truth with Michael Lance. Walk in Truth is a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. Let's say that you went to WebMD and you were having some symptoms and you began to do research on WebMD and all the 10 symptoms that you have physically, they're pointing to the same disease. And so you do all your research, maybe you get your hands on some medical journals and you realize every symptom you have is this disease. You got the data and you've done now your research and you agree with the facts. You've got this disease and let's say this disease is 100% fatal. But as you read on, you read about a Dr. Strunk in Germany. And Dr. Strunk in Germany has the antidote to your disease and your symptoms. And so you now do all the research on the antidote and you realize that people with your same symptoms with this terribly fatal disease are flying to Germany from all over the world. They're getting an injection from Dr. Strunk and they're healed. And you're convinced now You've done your homework on the symptoms. You've done your homework on Dr. Strunk. And now you are convinced that if you get this injection, you're saved. You have the raw data. You agree that it's true. Please listen. But until you get on a plane and go to Germany and receive that injection from Dr. Strunk, you're still going to die. That's the difference between a said faith and a saving faith. You could have the data. You could agree that it's true. You could ask somebody on the street, do you believe that Jesus Christ is a historic figure? Yeah. Do you believe he died on the cross? Yeah. Do you believe he died on the cross for the sins of the world? Yep. Do you believe that he rose from the dead? Yeah. Are you a Christian? Mm. There are people out there who have the data agree that it's true, but have not received the saving injection. Everybody with me? It's notitia ascensus fiducia. If you were to draw a line under notitia, under ascensus, you have to move from data to saving faith. Example, look at verse 19. You believe that God is one. That's the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's Deuteronomy 6, 4. You do well if you believe that. The demons also believe that. There are no atheist demons. They're all believers. Did you know that? All demons are believers. In fact, they're orthodox. They believe the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And they do better than a lot of people. They believe and they shudder. The Greek word for shudder is what a cat does when it's freaked out and bristles. Hair goes up. 
The other day, my dog was sitting on my lap, and my dog gets freaked out by certain things, noises, instruments, certain movements, and she was on my lap shaking. And I'm like, what's wrong with this dog? And something was kind of freaking her out. Demons believe that God is one and shudder, but they have no saving relationship with God. And they do better than a lot of people who say they believe there's a God, but they don't shudder. They don't fear the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom and knowledge. And so it is absolutely vital that we understand James's argument. Properly interpreted, says Douglas Moo, Paul and James are united in their understanding of faith and works and their relationship to justification. The appearance of a conflict is created because they give two key words, faith and justify, different meaning, and because their arguments are advanced against different errors. You could say they are fighting different battles. They are standing back to back, but battling in different directions. Let me explain. Paul is battling people who think you're saved by works or the works of the law. And he's saying to them, you cannot be saved by the works of the law because the law reveals the problem of sin and exposes that we're all sinners in need of a savior. So Paul is battling People over here that say you're saved by keeping the law. James, back to back with Paul, is battling people who say, ah, you don't have to do anything. You can just make a verbal profession and you're good. And they are both battling, but in different directions. Does that make sense to everybody? And so this is what's going on. They're battling different foes to the gospel in different directions. But they both would acknowledge that Faith and works are inseparably linked together. You can't have one without the other. Remember, James came to believe in his half-brother, Jesus, after the resurrection. He became a believer. And then the works of doing or living out his faith followed. So the faith mentioned in verse 14 is a faith that can't save because it's not a real faith. It's a said faith. So, an important note. The difference between Paul and James consists in the sequence of works and conversion. Very important. Paul denies any efficacy or efficiency to pre-conversion works. Paul is saying, your works don't save you. You can't pile up enough works to get saved. But James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. Everybody with me? So this is what he's talking about. Works are the outward expression of an inward faith. When we baptize someone, we say, okay, this baptism is about to be an outward expression of an inward reality that's already happened in the heart. In the same way, works are an outward expression of something that's already happened on the inside. Unless a person is born again, he will not see the kingdom of heaven. And works are the natural outgrowth of being born again of the Holy Spirit. You're going to have fruit. Are you going to have seasons when there's more fruit than other times? Certainly. Now, James is going to give an illustration of what he's talking about. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, 
This may have been a real situation in the church, just like we saw in the earlier section with a poor and rich person walking in. And one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled. And yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? You have someone come to you and they say, I haven't eaten in three days, I'm starving. And you say, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, be filled. No, you buy them a turkey sandwich. And then you pray for them. I was uh, going through a McDonald's drive-thru some years ago. And there was a man who was there saying, I will work for food. And he had that sign. So I went through the drive-thru and I bought two cheeseburger meals, a couple of cheeseburgers, fries, soda. And I pulled up to him and I said, here. And I tried to hand him the bag and he said, oh, I don't want that. I said, what do you mean? You're standing outside of McDonald's. I just bought you the number two happy, happy meal that should make you happy, right? What, what do you mean you don't want it? I don't want, I don't want that. I want money. So I rolled my window back up and I said, now there's four cheeseburgers for Pastor Michael. <laughs> what a day, what a glorious day. This is speaking of a legitimate need. A person who comes to you and says, look, I'm going to defer to making sure someone's fed, right? I'm not talking about their greeds. I'm not talking about manipulation. I'm talking about a brother or sister who walked in here and said, I haven't eaten in a couple days. I'm in a bad way. And they confess to us, what are we going to do? We're going to make sure they have something to eat. And then we'll talk about how they got there and what we can do about it. But what if they walked in and they came to the front for a prayer, and they said, I haven't eaten in two or three days. And I said, be warm, be filled. Lots of luck to you. Shalom. Hey, have a good day. And they walk out. Right? What if it were you, and you hadn't eaten in two to three days, and someone said, be warm, be filled. Maybe they even prayed for you. Hey, we appreciate prayer, but I really need something to eat. That's what Paul or excuse me, James is talking about. Flip over to 1 John, just a little bit to your right. A few pages to your right. 1 John 3. 1 John 3. I'm going to read from the NIV um, because it's just so beautiful the way this is. And it says, this is how we know, 1 John 3, 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone, 1 John 3, 17, has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? How could he have warm words, but cold deeds, if you will? Dear children, verse 18, let us not love with words or tongue, but with what? Actions and truth. Empty professions. We would say, in other spheres of life, if you go back to the book of James, that person's all talk. They talk a good game. Have you ever had someone maybe challenge you? I've had this happen over the years. I've played a lot of racquetball over the years, and someone will hear I'm a racquetball player. Oh, you play racquetball? Okay, I'll take you down. Pastor Michael, come on. And I'll say, all right, let's go in the court. Since you're talking a big game, let's see what you got, right? And then in the court, it will reveal if there is a symmetry between profession and action. 
Amen. We can talk a big game. Hey, listening family, this is Pastor Michael, and I want to tell you about the store at walkintruth.com. There's 27 products up at the store right now, ranging from things like the teaching on 666 from the book of Revelation, the seven seals from Revelation, Scientology, Jehovah's Witnesses, the anatomy of a fall, how to avoid falling from 2 Samuel, and even teaching on the occult. Most recently, an interview with Frank Sontag about the New Age movement and his personal testimony. Hey, when you go to the store and you purchase a product, you partner with us to reach more people like you. So go to the store, walkintruth.com, click on the store, purchase a product of interest, buy it for a friend, and when you do, you'll be partnering with us to reach more people for the cause of Christ. We love you. We appreciate you. You can also give donations there at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Click on that store and partner with us today. We appreciate it. God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. And then in the court, it will reveal if there is a symmetry between profession and action. Amen? We can talk a big game all day long. But the question is, who are we really? There's a man who showed up to a place called 24-Hour Cleaners, and he had the things he needed clean, and it was 10 p.m. in the evening. And he went to open the door, and it was locked. He's like, what's going on? It says 24-hour cleaner. The door's locked. So the next day, he came back at 8 in the morning. He pulled on the door, and it was open. And he said, hey, last night, I tried to bring my clothes at 10 p.m. You, you guys are 24-hour cleaners, right? And the owner said, no, that's just the name of our store. We're not open 24 hours. We, we just call it 24-hour cleaners. And hey, look, there are people who will say to you, I'm a Christian. But you got to wonder if there is a matching up between the sign on the business and what's actually taking place. That's what James is saying. And perhaps this is another situation where he saw this happen. And so he says, even so, James 2.17, faith, if it has no works, is what? It's dead. Being by itself. It's not truly alive in Christ. It is not converted. The Spirit's not there. For the first fruit of the Spirit is love. And if you could be a loveless, cold person in the face of a desperate, legitimate need, then you probably don't know Christ. Some of you have heard before about the Church of Sardis. And it says... He who has the seven spirits of God, Revelation 3, 1, the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. There's a true story of a young minister in Oklahoma who went to this little, though long-standing church in, church in hope of really reviving the ministry of it. He had stars in his eyes, a great hope for the future. He thought he could turn it around. He gave it his best effort, his best shot, week after week, preaching hard to the people, trying to get passion stirred in the church, but to no avail. Finally, he had one last idea. It seemed to work. He announced in the local newspaper on Saturday that the church had died. And on Sunday afternoon, they were going to have a funeral service for the church itself. All who wished to attend could come. Well, for the first time in years and his years there, the place was packed. In fact, people were standing outside on tiptoes looking through the window to see this most unusual service for a church. 
And to their shock, because most of them got there 20 or 30 minutes early to get a seat, there was a casket down front, smothered with flowers. He told the people as soon as the eulogy was finished, they could pass by and view the remains of the dearly beloved that they were putting to rest that day. Well, the people could hardly wait until he finished the eulogy. He slowly opened the casket, pushed the flowers aside. The people walked down. They filed down one by one to look inside the casket at the dearly beloved. But something happened. Something that made them leave sheepishly, feeling guilty as they walked out the door. Because inside the casket, the young pastor had placed a mirror. And as they walked by, each of them got a good look at the dead church, one by one, as they looked into the mirror. A radical measure indeed, but James, addressing the church, says, I want you to take a little inventory of your soul. Someone may well say, you have faith, I have works, verse 18. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. There are some that believe that James is restating the argument, and some people are saying, I have faith. And James is saying, I have works. Will you show me your faith without the works, James says, and I will show you my faith by my works. How can anybody know that you're saved unless there's some sort of action that proves that? How would we get a opportunity to share the gospel with a coworker if our life is a shambled mess we are a hypocrite all week long, and then we want to preach the gospel of hope and change in Christ. What's a coworker going to say? You're a disaster. Why would I ever listen to you? But if they see some fruit, and I'm not talking about perfection, some sort of change in your life, they may say, hey, I want to know what you have. R. Kent Hughes says, faith and works are like the wings of a bird. There can be no real life and no flight with a single wing, whether works or faith. But when the two are pumping together in concert, their owner soars through the heavens. Faith and works, uh, neither is authentic without the other. We tackled verse 19, where we see that the, even the demons are orthodox, but obviously they don't have a saving relationship with God. And so James says, verse 20, are you willing to recognize you foolish fellow. Do you love James? He must have heard his brother preach before because sometimes Jesus was that direct, right? Are you willing to realize this? The word foolish is empty. So you could say, you shallow person or you empty-headed fool. You could translate it this way. Uh, James didn't read the book How to Win Friends and Influence People, apparently. That faith without works is useless. Are you willing to realize this? See the words, are you willing? That's where much of life <laughs> comes down. Are you willing? Are you willing to hear what James is saying? Am I willing to hear? There's a play on words in the Greek here. It actually could read, faith that has no works does not work. You could hear, you could see James hand, with a sign outside the church, faith that has no works doesn't work. And he would hold it out on a placard, right? Now, illustration. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? 
you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was what? Perfected. Now, in Genesis 15, 6, I'm not going to go there for the sake of time, but most of you, if not all of you, know this famous scene. Abraham is wondering how God is going to fulfill promises of uh, offspring as the stars of the sky when he doesn't even have a child of his own. Is Eleazar, his servant, going to be this one? And God says, no, you are going to have a child from your own body. And Abraham believed in the Lord, and that belief, Genesis 15, 6, was reckoned to him as righteousness. When Abraham believed in the Lord, he believed the promise of God. God said, it's logizomai in Greek, I, I credit that faith as you being righteous before me, Abraham. You, are, you have now imputed righteousness. Done deal. That was 11 years before the sign of circumcision was given. This is very important to understand. And 30 years before Abraham went up on Mount Moriah to offer Isaac to the Lord. 30 years before this event of the famous Abraham and Isaac going up to Mount Moriah, him holding the knife over his son. 30 years prior to that, God said, you are righteous by your faith in me. So how does this work then? Abraham's act of being willing to offer Isaac was a sign that the profession of faith was actually legitimate. You see, his faith was a working faith and through his works, his faith was perfected or completed. His faith was brought to maturity as his faith and actions work together. Everybody with me? The offering of Isaac was simply affirmations, affirmation of a faith that had already existed 30 years before that and a righteousness he already had before God. That action of obedience was simply testimony of what he already was. Abraham's whole life, you could say this was maybe the climax of his obedience, was about obedience. Imperfect, to be sure, but still consistently, when God called him to do something, Abraham responded positively. And so all the nations would be blessed through him. And the scripture was fulfilled. Look at verse 23, which says, Abraham believed God. Now this is from Genesis 15, 6, what I just talked about. And it, his belief, was reckoned to him as righteousness. See the word reckon? That's logizomai. L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I. Logizomai. It means to, be, to impute righteousness. And Abraham was called what? He was called the friend of God. Now that's one thing if somebody says to you, God is my friend. Sometimes when people say that, do you, do you wonder a little bit about them? God's my friend. <laughs> but you know, it's actually a biblical concept. But how about if you heard God say, I want you to put your name here, and I'll put mine here for a second. Michael is my friend. What? Can you imagine if 
somehow, some way a message came to you and somebody said, maybe an angel or something said, hey, I just heard something in heaven that I want to pass along to you. And I'd say, what is it? What is it? By the way, you're real shiny. Let me put my sunglasses on. God just said, Michael is my friend. I would be like, what? What? Sometimes I wonder how God could even love me let alone call me his friend. Well, Abraham knew God so well. And this is what friendship is all about. That Abraham could be called God's friend. Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And you, he said to the apostles the night before he died, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Hey, listening family. If you're new to Walk in Truth, my name is Michael Lance. I'm the senior pastor of Living Truth Christian Fellowship in the city of Corona in Southern California. Hey, recently I've written a book called Suit Up, putting on the full armor of God. It shows you how to put on what God has provided so that you can stand strong in the spiritual battle and stand strong against temptation with the resources that God provides. This book is available at the store at walkintruth.com. Go to walkintruth.com, click on the store, click on the book. I'll get you a signed copy and your donation will help support Walk in Truth and help us reach out to more people. Again, the book is Suit Up, Putting on the Full Armor of God, available at walkintruth.com. That's walkintruth.com. Thanks for listening to Walk in Truth. Pastor Michael would love to hear from you. You can write him when you visit walkintruth.com.